Well, we come to the preaching, the teaching of God's Word this morning, and I'll invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Philippians. We are coming to the conclusion of our summer in Philippi, so to speak, I guess, or certainly a letter to those in Philippi, and uh, we want to end as Paul ended, and we trust that we will be blessed and edified even in these uh, remaining 13 verses, which by Pastor Howard's standard of covering verses should actually take us two months, but we will try to do this in about one hour. We'll see how this goes. All right, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to turn our hearts now to your word, to the preaching, the teaching of your word, that it might be a blessing to us that as we open the pages of your very thoughts and your hearts towards us, as expressed by your Apostle Paul to your church in Philippi, back in the early days of Christianity itself, Father, we see how much this letter has blessed us even as it has blessed the church universal for so many, many years, a couple of decades. So we just thank you so much for these years, and uh, we thank you for the tears, and we thank you for the heartfelt, uh, the joy and and the sorrow that is expressed, and we just ask that uh, you would... Uh, cause them to settle in our hearts and our minds, that we would be edified, you would be glorified, that all things would redound to Christ and his glory in our hearts and our lives. To this end we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, before we examine our text this morning or, or dive into it, what I'd like to do is to just quickly review the overall context of the letters of this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians in in a little bit of detail so that it'll help us understand uh, where we've been and where we're going, where what Paul's intent was behind writing this this letter, and then ultimately, of course, to kind of fix the the immediate context in which we're we're, we're landing the, the plane, so to speak, along with Paul. And uh, to help us do that, uh, uh, I utilized a commentator, Gordon Fee, and some others, and they were particularly helpful here. But just to quickly review, in approximately A.D. 51, Paul, in obedience to a vision he received, referred to that as the Macedonian call, uh, he left the Middle Eastern area of Asia Minor, and along with Silas and Timothy and Luke, he set sail for what we now call Europe. And his first stop in this new continent, in, in the northern part of Greece, was a Roman colony called Philippi, and it was of considerable importance in the ancient world. He ended up preaching and teaching some uh, theology there and preaching the gospel, and he met a group of faithful Jewish women, who, and he uh, received a, uh, there was a receptive audience to the gospel, and he established his first Christian church, his first Christian congregation, uh, was settled in Philippi. Young Timothy, it appears, 
played a significant role in this particular work at the time, and there was a natural bond that was created between him and the Philippians who came to Saving Faith. And uh, among the first believers who struggled along with Paul in his ministry were several women, uh, Lydia, of course, Eudoia, and Syntyche, along with an important uh, man or figure named Clement, along with some other laborers. And we recall that Paul's experiences in Philippi weren't necessarily all that great. Uh, We do know that uh, he ended up in in conflict there and even got imprisoned. And uh, we do also know that as a result of his faithful proclamation of the gospel, even in prison, the Philippian jailer came to saving faith and presumably joined the local church there. Having been asked by the authorities to leave, Paul left Luke in charge of the church in Philippi, and he headed towards Thessalonica. And during three weeks of very difficult ministry in that city, he uh, received some material assistance from the Philippian church and spiritual encouragement from them. He was forced to flee Thessalonica, so he went on to Berea, to Athens, and then finally to Corinth, where he ended up spending a year and a half And while he was there, he received uh, assistance from the Philippian church. Eventually, perhaps about a year later, Paul set out on another trip, the so-called third missionary journey, uh, the major purpose of which was to raise money from amongst all the different churches that had been established now in in Greece area and in Europe uh, to meet the needs of the poor uh, Jewish churches in Jerusalem and Judea. And he also had a theological purpose for this particular visit, and uh, that is that his emphasis on grace and the gospel entailed accepting Christian Gentiles, of course, into the faith without them being required to fulfill any Jewish ceremonial obligations. And, of course, this raised a whole bunch of eyebrows on the part of the Jewish circles and created serious tensions, and uh, even among the moderate groups, and it definitely provoked some very serious opposition uh, elsewhere. And these, this group of opposers to the Christian message and gospel outside of Ju- any Judaic uh, ceremonies and customs, uh, they were referred to as Judaizers, and uh, they began a campaign of their own designed to lead Paul's converts to accept circumcision and the law as essential uh, complements to their Christian confession. And uh, because many perceived Paul's missionary work to be an abandonment of his Jewish heritage, the apostle felt constrained as part of this journey in, in collecting monies for the, the, the Jewish uh, church there to clarify his position. The bringing in of the Gentiles through faith, apart from works, was not a contradiction, but rather a fulfillment of the scriptures, which Paul clarified in later letters. So as Paul traveled throughout Macedonia during his third missionary journey, he would surely have warned the Philippians of the Judaizing threat, uh, which had created havoc in Galatia, right? We know that the letter to the Galatians was intended to address that and confront that. And uh, he suspected that it would no doubt spread to Philippi and some of the other churches. And because the Philippians were in financial straits, And because they had already shown great generosity on several occasions, Paul was not intending to request any additional funds from them at all for this latest project. 
However, as soon as they had heard of it, they insisted on having a share. Indeed, their poverty welled up to uh, an overwhelming generosity. And uh, Paul notes that very in, in a lot of detail in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 5, where he, he commends the Philippians for their, for their love, for their generosity towards, uh, towards these other believers. So Paul completed his, his project and eventually brought the offering to Jerusalem. Jewish opponents, however, managed to get him imprisoned, and so for two years, he ended up waiting in a jail in Caesarea. And during this time, the Philippians felt a responsibility to help Paul, but their own difficult circumstances, along with the uncertainty about Paul's status, prevented them from actually sending any additional support, like financial support. At last, the apostle, recognizing that the only way he's going to get out of jail there um, was to appeal to Caesar, which he did. And in the year 59 or 60, roughly, under guard, he sailed for Rome. Word of this event uh, must have spread quickly throughout the various churches. And the Philippians then determined to have a share in Paul's struggles as soon as they got the necessary information in order to help him out. And, of course, we know that the apostles' experience in Rome was mixed. He found opportunities there, of course, to proclaim the gospel and to defend the gospel amongst the Jews. And we know that the, the gospel found root in the Praetorian Guard and beyond. And, moreover, we know that his, his um, imprisonment emboldened and encouraged many Roman Christians to speak up and share God's word. But we also know that his imprisonment was a time of affliction, filled with uncertainties and needs and various discouragements. Added to his anguish was the presence of these Jewish Christians who sympathized with many of the Judaizers. And uh, rejecting the distinctive elements of Paul's preaching, these men were engaged in the proclamation of the gospel. And while they didn't necessarily embrace all the objectionable uh, elements of the Galatian heresy, their motivation was not pure, and uh, they aimed to undermine the work of the apostle for the sake of their own advancement. Within a few months of Paul's arrival in Rome, the Philippians had become aware of his worsened condition. They therefore mounted their efforts and raised a large monetary gift for him. The Philippians, however, themselves were undergoing some serious difficulties. Opponents of the Christian community were causing great alarm in the congregation, and the Judaizing threat was beginning to make itself felt. Physical needs were beginning to produce an anxiety amongst the various members of the church who had begun to wonder whether their Christian faith was capable of sustaining them. So all these factors combined together to create some disagreements within the church, distrust, and a poisonous spirit of self-seeking. The leadership of the church was beginning to fracture, and Eudoia and Syntyche had fallen into the sin of dissension. In general, the spiritual health of the church had deteriorated considerably. Now, conscious of how much they were in need of spiritual help and guidance, they dispatched Epaphroditus with a gift and asked Paul to keep him as his assistant, but to send their beloved Timothy back to them in Philippi. On the way to Rome, Epaphroditus fell gravely ill, and he was unable to fulfill his mission speedily. 
a report of this setback reached Philippi, causing great consternation and concern, obviously. And however, God spared Epaphroditus, who at the risk of his life continued on to Rome. And by the time that he actually reached Rome, Paul had been in prison perhaps uh, for a year already. The Philippian offering, therefore, was truly a God-given blessing, and the apostle was at a loss as to how to express his thanks to them, that, to this church that had given so sacrificially to him. The news of the problems in Philippi required immediate attention, but their request that Timothy be sent back to them could not be granted because more and more people had been deserting Paul and Timothy alone, Paul decided, was the only person who could really minister to him in this particular dark hour. So aware that the Philippians would be deeply disappointed to see Epaphroditus rather than Timothy return, Paul was faced with various serious challenges. How could he cushion this inevitable disappointment is one question. Might Epaphroditus become the object of undeserved criticism for failing Paul in some way? Um, How could he convey the great joy that he had for the church's continual participation in his apostolic ministry, while at the same time rebuking them unambiguously for the grave lapse in sanctification that they appeared to be demonstrating? Would he be able to express his heartfelt thanks for their costly offerings and yet discourage them from doing it again? And how would he report truthfully of his own particular troubles without intensifying their particular spiritual discontent? Indeed, how could he help them in this great hour of their need? This very difficult task was what was before the apostle and would draw from him under divine inspiration a message full of comfort and joy, rebuke and encouragement, doctrine and exhortation. And quite beyond Paul's own powers of anticipation, this letter he was about to dictate would speak to the hearts of countless believers for many centuries to come, as we all know, and we can, we can re- receive those blessings even as we read this letter for ourselves. So now as we turn our attention this morning to our text, we note that Paul's final shift in thinking as he concludes his letter with his major concerns about the various circumstances now addressed that were brought to him by Epaphroditus, he he now turns to the actual reason for writing the letter somewhat in the first place, which is to thank them directly for this support, this ministerial gift and and support. He hasn't done that so far in the letter directly, although his his gratitude is clearly implied in a couple of places earlier in the letter. The important thing is that when read aloud in the gathered community, these will be the final words that are left ringing in their ears, that their gift to him has been a sweet-smelling sacrifice, pleasing to, of course, himself as a recipient, but also to God, and that God, in turn, keeping with this rich supply in Christ Jesus, will fill them to the full regarding all their needs. And all this redounds to God's eternal glory. And of course, in the meantime, they'll scarcely be able to overlook the various exhortations and appeals that Paul's written throughout the letter, reaching up to this point in our text now, given the predominance of these concerns in the larger middle section of the letter. So, that's the context. Let's read our text then this morning in Philippians chapter 4, 
And we're going to read verses 10 through 23. That is to the end of the chapter. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. When we look at the beginning there in verse 10, we see once again a little bit of a transition taking place. Paul looks like on several occasions just prior, looked like he was going to land the plane and end his letter. Uh, you know, we can see even as, as Chris covered last Sunday in uh, chapter 4, verse 8, it says, you know, finally, brethren, uh, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, and so forth. So it's just finally, kind of get the sense that in conclusion, brethren, but as he, as he lands the plane on that particular thought, he goes, ah, yes, postscript, this is, this is really important. I need you to know this, but... I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. So we see this transition taking place once more where he kind of lifts off and he wants to get this final little bow tie put on this, this letter, this package. And uh, he wants to emphatically state that uh, what he's already hinted at or indicated at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, that he rejoiced greatly. He uh, again points to Christ as the source of his source of joy, and he reinforces this way the three-way bond between himself, the Philippian church, and the Lord, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say that now at last, and several years have likely passed, as indicated, uh, that they have last ministered to his needs in this particular way. And you've revived your concern for me. He goes on, he's saying, it's, it's like a botanical phrase. It's, like a, it's a metaphor, which means it's blossomed again, is, is what he's basically saying. Your, your, your concern for me has, has re-blossomed, it's re-emerged. It's like a perennial that in springtime is flowering once again. And uh, after a period of some dormancy in this matter of giving and receiving, they have thus revived this dimension of their friendship with Paul. 
And indeed, you were concerned before, Paul writes, but you lacked opportunity. So he acknowledges that the Philippians had and continue to have this continued concern for his welfare and his well-being. He wasn't pointing out a deficiency, as in, you know, finally, uh, now at last, you know, finally, it's about time, now at last, you've revived your, your concern for me. No, rather, he's, actually, he's not pointing out any kind of deficiency or indicating any kind of an impatient expectation on his part. What he's saying is what constituted this lack of opportunity is, is rather circumstances. And, and while we don't know exactly what they all were, we can speculate that it was probably a combination of the Philippians not really knowing what was going on in Paul's life. And they didn't have text and Instagram and you know, instant messenger and all that stuff back then. So word would take a while to reach the church, um, not only discerning his need, but the, the general uh, challenge that they would have had. Of course, they were kind of broke. Uh, the Philippian church was pretty much financially destitute itself. And, uh, and so in addition to collecting a sufficient amount of funds that would warrant actually identifying somebody who was then trustworthy enough to, to take the long route to Rome, uh, it wasn't like a one-hour plane flight, right? I mean, this was going from Greece, the northern, almost the border between, between Greece and modern-day Bulgaria, Turkey, and then doing a land trek pretty much all the way up and through the Balkans and into, down into, into Italy, into Rome. This would have been a long, long journey. So a combination of that as well. And uh, so regardless of the reasons why at last the Philippians were able to rekindle this, this relationship, we under, he understood, Paul understood the hiatus had nothing to do with their lack of concern, but rather the lack of their opportunity. He goes on in verse 11 to say, not that I speak from want. So he essentially puts his current situation into perspective. His, uh, his not that is intended to guard against anyone's drawing the wrong inferences from what he's just said. The, the wrong inference in this case would be that his joy is over their gift. In other words, well, thank you so much for the gift. I'm just really, really blessed by it. And he's saying, well, actually, it doesn't really have so much to do with your gift, but rather, the, on the contrary, it's because of his expressing and his desire to express the fact that it was his joy at the receipt of seeing Epaphroditus showing up on, on, you know, probably close to his deathbed or certainly not, not in full vigor. And he kind of crawls in through the door and he takes this big money bag and plops it down. And Paul's going, what? Where? How? Who? You know, what's going on? And, and in amazement, he's going, wow, wow. This is just amazing in terms of the sacrifice that you went through in order to reach me and to give this to me. So Paul goes on. He says, for I've learned to be content in whether circumstances I am. He, he's experienced the gamut of missionary life with its attendant blessings and its challenges, its privileges, and its deprivations. And uh, we know that he experienced a wide range of suffering throughout his ministry. And he, and he says that, and in verse 12, he says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. 
And we know from our study, from the word humble in James 1, 9, that this truly does mean humble, you know, humble, quotation marks. It, it definitely means poor. It could be destitute, certainly wanting in many ways. But, but Paul here uses the word not just like there's times when I'm going hungry, but he goes on to say it's not just humbled in the sense of being poor or in want, but he goes on and he adds this sense in which humility was a part of Christ's character. So I, I'm in humble and, and want to live a life that is revealed in, in various circumstances in a way that is similar to that of his Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he adds that in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And, and so this is a blanket catch-all statement. It's, it doesn't matter whether I'm rich, I'm poor, I'm for better, for worse, in, in, you know, in sickness and in health. Uh, I marry to Christ till death do me part. And he goes on to say that. And so these changing inner circumstances, um, his, his inner contentment couldn't be um, crushed or ruined by whatever was going on on the outside. And this, this contentment, being content, means self-sufficient. And the Stoics use this word, and it occurs only here in the New Testament, to mean this human self-reliance and fortitude, sort of a calm acceptance of life's pressure. And, and, and Paul's referring to that. He's, he's using that terminology for a reason, but he also goes on to refer to it as divinely bestowed sufficiency, whatever the circumstances. So this is not just a gritting, you know, toughing it out and stiff upper lip approach to, to life and ministry. He's saying, I'm dependent upon Christ for that ability to bear up under these uh, having abundance and suffering uh, need. And, he, and that term there, I've learned the secret, is uh, actually a only occurs here in the New Testament, and it's a Greek term that comes out of the mystery religions, and it's a technical term meaning to be initiated into the mysteries, you know, uh, the Freemasons or some other, the Gnostics or something like that, where they go out of their way to initiate people into ever-growing more secrets. And he uses that term again as far as this mystery religions, but while others have been initiated into these various secret hush-hush society um, handshakes and whisperings and stuff like that, he goes and says, I've been initiated into both having a full stomach and going hungry. In other words, I've learned that secret of contentedness in the midst of, of missing a meal or two. Interestingly, the scripture does actually not provide any direct evidence whatsoever where Paul abounded in plenty. I mean, he makes reference there, uh, both having abundance and suffering need. And I don't know if, if you're anything like me, I'm scratching my head and going, where, where in the Bible does it talk about Paul ever abounding or, or having anything other than grief and sorrow and suffering and destitution or whatever? But the only thing that we could maybe speculate here is that he may 
be alluding to uh, the generous patronage of the Philippians themselves. That perhaps when he and his co-workers lived in Lydia's household in Philippi, and when they repeatedly supplied and provided for their material needs in Thessalonica and Corinth, um, he, he may be referring to the fact that he was amply supplied and he was very, very well taken care of in those few moments where, where you know, for, for a brief season, uh, he would receive an abundance. Verse 13 says, and he goes on to add, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so within this current context, Paul affirms his trust and his faith in the Lord that regardless of whatever his circumstances are, that he will indeed receive the resources he requires to accomplish the various tasks that the Lord has given him to accomplish. And with this well-known, with the well-known words of this verse, Paul brings to closure this brief digression that he just had in, in verses 11 to 13, in which he explains that his joy in receiving their gift was actually not predicated or based on meeting his need. He is just indicated here that he's learned to live in either want or plenty. And so his response is that I can actually do everything through him who gives me strength. So it's Christ that's really meeting his need. He'll modify that, and you'll you'll see in a moment. But before proceeding, I think it's just important to address this matter of how this verse is actually misused in our culture, right? You can see that verse up on coffee cups and little slogans and uh, seeing sports teams use it a lot and the like. And it it seems like many well-meaning believers sometimes mangle this text by quoting it outside of its current context. And the worst expression of this, uh, of this uh, abuse occurs when it is something made to say that I can do all things, as in especially extraordinary things, through Christ who strengthens me. That's the, that's the mangling of the context. It's like I could do anything and everything because God or Christ will give me the power and the strength and the wisdom or, or whatever. And of course, this very often, uh, uh, this is a misapplication that takes the exact opposite form of what Paul is really here saying. And Paul's point is that he has learned to live in either want or plenty through the enabling of Christ. So being in Christ and not being self-sufficient has rendered both want and prosperity of little or no significance. In fact, I I personally kind of found it helpful if you want to try to put this misapplication, this mangling of this verse, put it into a little bit of a context. For me, when I was reading this, Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I, I kind of put in a comma, small n, nevertheless. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. So that really conveys the sense of what he's saying there. So I can do all things through him who strengthens me. However, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. That, that I think, adequately conveys the sense of what Paul is trying to suggest there. Um, going 
carrying on with the text there in verse 14, as I've just indicated, nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. Paul hurries on to say that while Paul meets his needs adequately, he very much recognizes that God uses various means to achieve that end, including gifts from fellow believers. Paul acknowledges that he is at least in some degree of affliction here. Being in prison, of course, in Rome, uh, house arrest, where he's chained to a guard, he's not free to go anywhere, but he can receive people and he can talk to people. He's not in a dungeon per se, but nevertheless, he, uh, it's taken its toll on him, especially since it's been at least a year and he's still got another year to go, even though he doesn't necessarily know it. However, Paul's emphasis lies on the good that they did. You've done well. He commends them. And this sentence reinforces the acknowledgement that he began in verse 10, where Paul referred to this gift as this reblooming, if you will, of your caring for me. You've done well in your reblossoming of our friendship. And he elaborates in terms of their partnership uh, by saying, by using the word share. You've shared in my, my affliction. You've shared in my, my imprisonment with me in this sense. And he goes on in verse 15 to say, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. And we already touched on this in the the introduction that I just gave you, but they supported his ministry in Thessalonica and then later on in Corinth, and they gave sacrificially. Indeed, even to the point of harming themselves, it seemed that this particular church was very, very good at giving financial assistance to any other church that needed it, or Paul in particular as part. They, they adopted him. They embraced him. He was their missionary. Sort of like he, he was the first person they came to. Theirs was the first church in Europe, and they just loved him. And they loved Timothy, and they loved Luke. And so they, they embraced him. They gave sacrificially. And this phrase elaborates this theme of their, partners, their participation and their partnership together with Paul. And in some way, it's quite remarkable since it actually tells their story, and thus it's very well known to them. First, he reminds and commends them of their past partnership with him in the gospel. And then secondly, that reminder is couched in the language of friendship. In, in one of the primary expressions of, of friendship in, in, the, in the Greco, the Greek and, and Roman worlds of the time, um, this whole idea of friendship is participating in this exchange, if you will, of give and take. Uh, so sharing, sharing is a primary uh, component of friendship in that world. We don't have it as much. We're very much more independent here in our culture today. But back then, you you shared in in burdens, you shared concerns far more than what we do today. He goes on in verse 15 or 16 to say, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And and, and the question, of course, is like, why does he say this? Like, why why is he writing this to us, let alone them? Um, You know, it... uh, why, why a reminder that by his own admission that they already well know this? And a couple of reasons for this, of course, can be suggested. One is um, the reminders itself 
an indication of the happy relationship that he has with this particular church. Um, that the future reference that he's going to make here in just a couple of verses, this, this reference of being paid in full, makes it clear that there is no hidden motive that he has, uh, such as putting them under any kind of an obligation uh, lying behind it. Rather, as, as often happens in this interchange, if you will, between friends, one partner in the friendship takes delight in reminding the other how that expression of friendship has occurred in the past. And, and so Paul's point then is that in their present gift, even though after a hiatus of some years, it just represents yet another blessing in their long and their significant history that they have together. And, and the second idea here, the other reason that may be that he, that he mentions this, is that this is Paul's actual way of saying thank you for their long history of their giving and his receiving. Um, there's actually good evidence from, from the Greek, Greco-Roman world, uh, the actual expression of thank you was not a part of friendship so much. It is here. If, if, if a friend says something or gives something, the immediate response typically will be thank you. But back then, they didn't really express this concept or this notion of thank you. As strange as it may seem to us, true friends did not need to express thanksgiving directly in order for it to be received. It was just implied that if I give you something, I'm your friend and I love you. And you don't have to say thank you for that back then. What Paul is most likely doing here in keeping actually with the social convention of the time is that he's actually expressing his thank you to them indirectly, but even more profoundly by rehearsing their history in this way. In other words, he's saying, you know, and I know, we both know we love each other, and that you, you love me, and you're giving me support and encouragement, and you know that I love you, and, and, and that I've been there, and, and, and I brought the gospel to you. He goes on in verse 17 to say, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for your profit, which increases to your account. And so he goes on now with another one of these, not that, like in verse 11. Paul interrupts his expression of gratitude with yet another qualifier against any possible misunderstanding. And, and his, his short recital of their exemplary history of friendship with him in this matter of giving and receiving is not to be taken as an indirect request for more. In other words, he's not saying, oh, I really appreciate what you gave me. It was, a, it was such a blessing. What a joy. And, you know, he's very, you know, expressive and effusive. And, you know, by the way, I could really use more. Like, he's not, he's not trying to imply that at all. Rather, it's the exact opposite. What he's doing is he's picking up this commercial or business language, this metaphor, where he says that he seeks that the profit that will go to their account as a result of the gift that they gave him. It, it's basically an accrual of this, or this, this gathering or gaining of interest on your divine account is what he's expressing to them. And so when, when it's unpacked, what he's saying to them ultimately is that in terms of the progress of your faith, the, the sign of your spiritual maturity and, and the love that you have for me is this expression that you 
gave to me in love at great cost to yourself in terms of the finances and the sending of Epaphroditus and, and all the things that entailed. And he's saying that every time that you do something like this, the, the finances that you sent to me and the encouragement that you provided to me, this is evidence of this fruitfulness that he is praying for them for uh, in verse 111, for example, in chapter 111. And this fruitfulness has this effect of being entered on the divine ledger, if you will, as interest, which will find its full expression in the coming of Christ itself. So Paul's interest is not in their reward as such, but in their gift as evidence that the relationship with Christ is in good order and is continuing to grow. That's what he's doing. He's saying their gift, which actually meets and serves his physical health or his needs, putting bread on the table for him, actually serves even more significantly as evidence of their, the Philippian church's spiritual health. And thus he concludes that money or this financial support of his own needs is actually ultimately irrelevant. What counts is what God is doing in their lives even as much as he appreciates it and as much as it blesses him, what's more important is the fact that the fact that you're giving and you're giving sacrificially and that you care for me, you sent this man to me to, to share the concerns of the church and ask me my, my counsel, my advice, my, uh, you know, how I could uh, address your needs, that is the proof of the evidence of your love to me as much as or, and more so than what this money is. In verse 18, he carries on. He says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And since the Philippian church had already helped him so much, Paul did not want them to think that he was actually looking for more. He had received from the Philippians full payment, all the money they had sent, so he was abounding and he was amply supplied. He just made that totally clear. Like, you know, it's not like, thanks for the down payment or thanks for this installment. I'm really looking forward to the next one. No, no, I've got everything I need. Thank you so much. Don't send more is what he's trying to say behind the scenes there in some respects. What they had sent with Epaphroditus had an effect both on him and God for the gifts that they had sent to him, the words of encouragement from Epaphroditus, the financial blessing that he'd received, were actually a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Of course, it pleased him. He was grateful. He was thankful. But more importantly, it was to God. It was sacrifice, pleasing to God. And this term, this fragrant offering term, of course, we know was used in Leviticus for an offering that did, in fact, please God. And is also used in Ephesians 5, verse 2, of Christ's offering of himself as being a sacrifice, pleasing to God. So their gift, which had met Paul's material, his physical needs, has by that very fact also pleased God, who from this point on becomes actually the focus of the rest of this particular closing part of this, or this passage. 
Because Paul immediately goes on and he says in verse 19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So God himself would reciprocate to the Philippians. They had met Paul's needs and now God would meet theirs. God would not only bless them out of and from his bounty, but also in accordance with it, according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. As, as we'd already just noted earlier, this friendship presupposes or is based on this reciprocity, this giving and this taking. I give you something, you receive it, then you give me something, and I get something back. It's sharing. It's, it's a mutual sharing. It might not be 50-50. It could be 70-30, depending on if somebody is wealthy and somebody is poor. But if you loved each other, you helped each other out. And you showed it by, by, by ministering, by, by service, by, by meals, by whatever ways of friendship you could come up with. And so he does that, and he's, he's talking about how... Um, how this mutual giving and receiving, it, he now refers to it as, as, and it's brilliant, really, when you think about it, because although he is in prison, he's not going anywhere, he can't give them anything or send them anything. Rather, what he does is since their gift had the effect of being a sweet-smelling sacrifice, holy unto God, Paul assures them that God, whom he now deliberately designates as my God. In verse 19, you, know, you can see that there again. And he says, and my God will supply to you the, the he will assume this responsibility of reciprocity. So he's taking this need, my need will be met by my God who will meet your need. It's kind of a play on words, but it's really, really neat how he does that. Uh, and the Philippians, of course, get the better of it when you think about it. First, Paul's promising that God's uh, reciprocation will actually cover every need of yours, not just financial or, or physical or whatever it is, but like every need in material need, as the context demands, but also every other kind of need, as he, as he kind of just writes just generally. And so he says that, Philippians, in the midst of your poverty, God will richly supply what you need. Philippians, in the face of your continued opposition that you're receiving in this Roman colony of Philippi, in the, in the face of that, God will richly supply what you need as in, in terms of steadfastness and joy and encouragement. God will meet that. Even in their need to advance in the faith with one mindset, in, in this need that they have for unity in the moment, God says, or Paul says that God will richly supply the grace and humility that is needed for it. In the place of grumbling and anxiety that they've made reference to him, that Epaphroditus conveyed to him, Paul says that God will present to you a spirit of peace and of contentedness. Paul says, my God, Paul says, will act for me on your behalf by filling to the full 
all your needs, just as you have just met my needs in this particular moment. And God will do so, Paul says, in keeping with the glorious riches in Christ Jesus. The Philippians' generosity toward Paul, expressed lavishly at the beginning of verse 18, is exceeded beyond all imagination by the lavish wealth of the eternal God who dwells in glory and who is the creator and Lord of all riches. Nothing lies outside of his rightful ownership and his domain. They are all in his sphere of glory that is in God's alone. And in keeping with all of this, God's full supply will come their way to meet their every need. And so this language is deliberately expansive. After all, Paul's trying to say something concrete about the eternal God and God's relationship to his people. Because Paul has beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, expressed in this letter in the majestic Christ narrative in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, Paul sees clearly that Christ Jesus is the way that God has made his love known and available to his human creatures. In other words, God in his glory and the riches that are his has provided his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to meet our every need. And our primary every need is first and foremost spiritual and not physical. And so that's what this letter has ultimately been all about. It began in Christ Jesus. It now concludes in Christ Jesus. And indeed, even the customary closing greetings focus on Christ Jesus. For Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so this says it all. Nothing more can really be added. So Paul just concludes. He, he finishes his, his letter to them and his, and his thankfulness to them, and he adds, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In verse 20. And so Paul's doxology of praise to God serves as the final exclamation point to his letter. To our God, his heavenly Father, and to theirs, of course, he, the apostle, gives thanks and praise. And when one thinks of the riches of God lavished on us in Jesus Christ, what else is there but to worship and to praise him? When you think about that, Christ is indeed the focus of everything that God has and is doing in this world and in the next. But God the Father is always the first and last word in Paul's theology. He, you can see that my God, that he's just referring to earlier, but how my God's going to supply or provide for your needs, he now changes it. He says, it's actually now to our God. It's, it's our God. And he, the living God, the everlasting one who dwells in glory, is now ascribed the glory that is due to his name. And that's the end of his letter, apart from his closing little benediction, his little comments that he normally does. So he ends in verse 21 there. He says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. So the apostle, of course, conveys his greetings to all the saints. And the brothers who are with Paul also send their greetings. In other words, the ones that they would particularly know. That would include Timothy. Timothy's not coming, but he sends his regards. Um, all the saints, in verse 22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And, of course, the saints there would be, he's probably referring to the church in Rome. So these would be the people that they don't really know, but, but they're, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. 
and those members belonging um, there, and those who belong to Caesar's household. That's sort of an interesting one. Um, and they were probably the ones who had come to saving faith as a result of Paul's house arrest. They probably included these soldiers, some of the members of the Praetorian Guard, and various relatives of Caesar's household. And so no wonder Paul can refer earlier to what had happened to him, that this had, his imprisonment had served to advance the gospel. It certainly did. It, I mean, he reached some of the Praetorian Guard, and he reached some of Caesar's household. And the significance, if you think about it, of this greeting could hardly be lost on the Philippians, the believers themselves and the church there. The opposition and the persecution that they were receiving was due at least in part from the fact that Philippi was a Roman colony. I mean, these guys were, they're, they're emperor worshipers in Philippi. They loved, the, they loved Caesar. They were faithful to him. A lot of the people that made up the population of Philippi were retired ex-Roman soldiers and, and magistrates and people like that. They re- received special privileges um, for being a Roman colony, and their devotion to Caesar had a long history. And, uh, and not only besides having the gospel in common and now suffering for Christ in common, Paul and the Philippians also have a common source of opposition, that is, these, these Romans in general. And while the Philippians, they suffer at the hands of these Roman citizens that are royal, uh, loyal to Caesar, Paul is actually an actual prisoner of Caesar's in Rome. And so there's, there's a lot that they're sharing, right? Friendship means sharing. They've got a lot that they're sharing. They've got a very, very close friendship because of the shared opposition and the problems that they've got. But... Here's the ironic thing. In making him a prisoner within the heart of the empire, Rome has actually inadvertently brought about a member, or brought in this member of the opposition, this, this sect, this, this weird, quirky practitioner of the way, and, and he's gone to Rome, and what is he doing? He's making converts right in the heart of Rome, and right within the emperor's domicile, so to speak. And so... Paul has either found or made disciples of the Lord amongst members of the imperial household who are, what? Ironically, they are thus on the Philippian side in the struggle against those who proclaim Caesar as Lord. Now, that is an amazing turn of events when you think about it. He finally ends in verse 23, and he says, "'The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.'" It is grace, that is the favor of God that is theirs through the Lord Jesus and he, that he wishes for them. And thus this final grace serves as a bookend of his letters, which begin with grace and oftentimes peace as part of the original greeting. And to miss the central focus point on Christ is to really miss the letter and the purpose of this letter altogether. And this is what Paul writes. This is his theology. This is how he understands Christianity, his faith in in the Lord Jesus Christ. To live is Christ, and to die is to gain Christ. And for the sake of such gain, namely the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as one's own Lord, all else is, as we know, Paul refers to as merely rubbish. It's garbage. So that leads us with a question. Do you know 
the Lord Jesus Christ personally in an intimate way, the same way that Paul did, the same way the believers in Philippi did, that they could bear up under persecution, the same way that many of us here in, in this church right now, Grace Fellowship Church, do. If, if you don't, don't, don't put that off. Don't, don't wait until you've got your life in order, that, you're, that you've got things right in your life, or that you're now respectable. That'll, that's just not ever going to happen. Today, now, is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When you die, or if you get killed in an accident on your way home after church today, it's too late. It is appointed, indeed, for all men once to die and after that to face the judgment. And God is going to judge everyone. No one has done anything that just naturally pleases God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And relying on a few good things that you may have done or plan to do in the future to kind of offset the, the bad things you've done, I'm going to do a lot of good things yet. I, I promise God I will come. The fact is that that's not going to get into heaven. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And if you don't know Jesus, you're going to die twice. You're going to die once physically, and then you're going to die spiritually, and that's going to be forever. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is compassionate and he is merciful. And to those who reach out to him in faith, in his son, Jesus Christ, you will live. So how are you going to take advantage of this particular great gift? It's by acknowledging that you are a sinner, that you sin. It's not that you made some mistakes and you flub up from time to time. The fact is we have to acknowledge the fact that actually we're a pretty miserable person. And we are sinners. And recognizing that we're a sinner and that we're in need of mercy and grace from God is the first step. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is my appeal to you. That's Paul's appeal to you. That's our appeal as a church to the nations, to this community that in which we find ourselves, in which we live. We need to share that. We want to let people know that there is peace. There is contentment. There is joy. It doesn't mean an easy life, a comfortable life, a pleasurable life. It just means that we will gain Christ. And we will gain life through Jesus Christ if we believe in him. I would just invite anyone here, even today, that if you'd like to talk about that or think about that and uh, you would want any more information about that, just please talk to somebody after the service and we'll be happy to answer any questions or to help you understand this any, any more um, than, than possible. In conclusion, some potential applications for us based on this short passage might feel long. The short passage, nevertheless. Um, the so what, as Chris pointed out, the Steve Lawson, so what? Number one, contentment is found in Christ. 
We must learn contentment in all our circumstances. We need to modify our lifestyles to adapt and to reflect our circumstances when necessary. And we need to continually rely on Christ for our true needs. We must recognize that what we have is what we need in order to accomplish what God wants us to do in our current season of life. There's that sense of contentedness. The next thing is true friendship equals sharing. It's important to share in the various costs and the burdens of solid ministries as we are able. Giving is its own reward, of course, but God will in turn reward us as appropriate and as needed. It is important to note that contributing out of our material resources is not any less spiritual an activity than other aspects of the Christian experience or faith. Indeed, it is an integral factor in a believer's sanctification. Paul commended the Philippians for giving because giving was a sign of their faith, their trust in God, their love for him, and faithfulness and obedience. And the fact is that ministers of the gospel, ministers, pastors, preachers, missionaries, those who are out working day in and day out on behalf of various churches, they're, they're blessed when they receive unexpected gifts. Um, it could be financial, but unsolicited expressions of love and support are even more so, uh, I think, an important contribution that we can make for the building up and the blessing of those who, who labor amongst us. And third, God gets all the glory. God will take care of our needs even as we help take care of other people's needs. God deserves and gets all the glory for what happens in our lives. And the Holy Spirit does bless and comforts our spirit even as we give our lives to him. I think those are some potential takeaways that we can take and apply from what we've just learned here. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to come before you and just thank you once again for this passage. It's so rich in meaning. Uh, Too often we read your word and we fly through the verses and we get a, a vague general sense as to what we've just read or what you're conveying to us in terms of it, their, their meaning and their application. But we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege that we have of coming together to study it together and, and dive a little bit deeper and to understand and unearth some of the nuances of, of what is being described and, and how rich your word is, and the fact that we can spend a lot of time uh, meditating and reflecting, and then not just doing that, but also applying what we've learned into our own lives so that uh, we're not merely just hearers of the word, but doers thereof. And so we thank you for this, this privilege and this grace in Christ Jesus, calling us unto yourself, that we might come and that we might worship you and give you all the praise and the glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name for this time this morning together. Amen.